Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Medardo Rosso taped live at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis. My guests are Sharon Hecker and Tamara Schenkenberg, the co-curators of Medardo Rosso Experiments in Light and Form, which is at the Pulitzer through May 13th. The exhibition is the first broad survey of Rosso's work in an American museum in over 50 years. Features nearly 100 works, including sculptures, drawings, and photographs. The exhibition's catalog is available from the Pulitzer for free for just a $7 PayPal-administered shipping charge. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Rosso is an Italian artist who spent much of his career in France. His sculptures of heads and figures in wax, plaster, and bronze are key pivots between an era of monumental bronze sculpture, realist and impressionist sculpture, and ultimately modern art. Hecker is the author of the forthcoming A Moment's Monument, Medardo Rosso, and the International Origins of Modern Sculpture, which University of California Press will publish in June. Hecker is an art historian who has also published extensively on Lucio Fontana and Luciano Fabro. Schenkenberg is a curator at the Pulitzer. She was previously on the Man podcast to discuss her exhibition, Fred Sandback, 64 three-part pieces. Sharon Hecker and Tamara Schenkenberg, after the break. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Nina Chanel Abney Royal Flush, the first solo exhibition in a museum for Abney, a 34-year-old artist from Chicago, who is identified by Vanity Fair magazine as one of the many artists championing the Black Lives Matter movement. The exhibition is a 10-year survey of about 30 of the artist's paintings, watercolors, and collages. Through her monumental paintings, Abney gives viewers the chance to take part in a meaningful conversation about issues of racial violence and social justice. She uses bold shapes and colors and the language of today's digital and celebrity cultures to take on controversial topics. She confronts those parts of human nature that seem easiest to ignore, prejudice, stereotypes, and biases. She has said that her work is, quote, easy to swallow, hard to digest. On view February 16th through July 16th at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash abney. Get to know the prolific 18th century sculptor and draftsman Edmé Bouchardon in the Getty's newest exhibition, Bouchardon, Royal Artist of the Enlightenment. Bouchardon combined an inventive spirit with a quest for perfection to achieve many of the masterpieces associated with Louis XV's reign including the historic equestrian monument to the king that was destroyed in the French Revolution. Co-organized with the Louvre, this exhibition demonstrates the remarkable variety of the artist's work and his mastery of different media. Visit getty.edu to explore the exhibition online, or go in-depth with the catalog at shop.getty.edu. Sharon Hecker and Tamara Schenkenberg, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you. Tamara, you have a nice phrase early on in the catalog that struck me as a, a, a good way to begin on Rosso. And you wrote that he is specifically interested in making art that, quote, eschewed the effects of permanence. And I think there are a lot of pieces in mini media here in which that's clear. So, yes, why is that of interest to him? I think that's the central question for Rosso, how does one eschew permanence? And he comes up with different strategies in order to explore exactly how that happens. And so in this exhibition, 
which is subtitled Experiments in Light and Form, we kind of try to explore those two poles in order to see how he tried to dematerialize sculpture, specifically thinking through effects of light, but then also manipulations of form as well. So either of you, talk me through the moment, late 1870s, 1880s, is that a, an, an interest of many sculptors? Is it something Rosso lands on on his own? Where does, where does he get that interest? Sharon, I think this is not an interest of sculptors at the time. It's very much an interest of painters. Impressionism uh, is very interested in this question of light and form together with paint. In sculpture, we don't have very many examples of sculptors who are interested in uh, dematerializing the object. This is a moment of great monuments, it's the age of monumentomania, heroic monuments as well, large sculptures, enormous public commissions. I don't think we can think of an example. And then maybe just to add this is Tamara, sculpture by its very nature is associated with permanence and stability. So there's something very radical in the notion of an individual artist trying to disrupt these core distinguishing characteristics of the medium. So why isn't he interested in large-scale heroic sculpture? He does, early in his career, take two whacks at it, and then he's done. Actually, more than two, because more he than has two. funerary monuments as well. I think he's looking for a new way to speak, make sculpture speak to modernity. And one of the ways, would, in his mind, would be to break up the form, to make it modern, to make it mobile, to make it less permanent, less fixed. Uh, his idea of an impression... It changes over time, but it's the idea of something that could be quickly glimpsed or very quickly felt, and he wants to transmit that to the viewer as well. So adding the temporal aspect to the most durable and lasting of all media had to take that route. Perhaps another reason, too, for his disinterest in monumental sculpture is that he wants to get a hold of the production of sculpture himself and take charge of it rather than outsourcing it later on in his career to commercial foundries. So perhaps that's another reason in which he his work becomes a little bit more intimate in scale. This is, this is a period when a sculptor would, would make something and then a foundry might buy the rights to the piece and then would just make bronze after bronze for many, many years. And he's not into that. Especially in the case of Rosa, I think that's interesting, and Sharon can speak more about it, because he does practice serial sculpture of sorts, where he, over the course of his career, has fewer than 50 subjects that he repeats in a very creative way over and over again, but each cast is different. I just wanted to say that he actually does also outsource to foundries. Rosa, any rule you make about Rosso, you immediately <laughs> will find the opposite. He doesn't seem to be particular, I, particularly identified with the idea of making uh, one kind of authorial statement. So at once he's making his own works, at once he's approaching the top French bronze foundry, Barbadien, and asking them to make additions. He, he doesn't adhere to one idea ever. And he always takes these things, like his own casting, in one direction, but at the same time he doesn't want a foundry to put their name on his works. So they get mixed together. So before we kind of get to specific works and specific processes, let's talk about those subjects for a moment. I think in the United States, he's best known for women and children, and there are some amazing examples of, of those here. 
first, why, why is that subject of particular interest to him? And then we'll get into some of the other subjects. This is Tamara. One could say that there's a biographical reason for his interest in mothers and children. He um, marries and has a child, a son, in Milan before he moves to Paris, and he leaves that family behind. So over the course of uh, the years spent away from his family, He's, he's very much thinking especially about his son and um, that connection that was severed. So there's a biographical component. Mm -hmm. But then in general, in the late 19th century, the subject of youth or children, mothers, it's, it's not uncommon to see in the arts an idealized fashion um, such as that he represents. He leaves Italy in 1889 for France, and at the time he's 31, just for context. Yeah, I think also in terms of the mother and child, it's what he does with those subjects that's so interesting because he disrupts an overly sentimental view of that relationship. In fact, when he goes to Paris, the first thing he makes is a mother and child, which very soon after he makes it, he takes the head off the mother. And this is a very advanced radical statement to show the world from the point of view of the child. Very modern as well. Explain a little more how he's taking the head off the mother, because I shouldn't leave that <laughs> there. <laughs> nothing, nothing Freudian. Oh, Basically, yeah. <laughs> uh, he cuts that part of the cast off, and he continues to cast it without the head of the mother, and it becomes this very abstract image, because it's very hard to find, you have to look very hard to find the child at the breast of the mother, and it becomes this kind of uh, materic work without the specificity of the subject of a mother nursing her child. And it's it is very interesting in the context of the late 19th century and the fragment and how what happens when you change that uh, focus. You could think all the way back to Madonnas and, and I was children. Gonna, I was going to ask about that <laughs> right. next. I, obviously, Madonna and child are a staple of Italian art. Was that an interest of his at all? Because it doesn't seem particularly faith-oriented in any particular way, but is it just as a subject that would have been a hard thing for him to avoid, or is that why he chooses it, or, you know, what's the relationship between him and, and that tradition? Well, he's profoundly Italian, although he, you know, it's in his background. He went to religious school as a child, but he also considers himself kind of a citizen of the world and an anarchist and a very modern sculptor, and so obviously it's in his in his mind at all times, but at the same time, he's making very modern statements about what he believes that subject should be about. And those those uh, subjects that are represented in the show, the two subjects that depict the mother with the child, they feel archetypal, but at the same time, there's a degree of tenderness that you can see even in, this, in the cast where the mother's head is not depicted. You can still see her hands enveloping the body of the child. So there's there's a psychological... Um, moment that occurs, I think, in the work as well, that takes it away from the universal into something that's a little bit more personal. You know, you, you, you mentioned that sometimes we just get the mother's hand. There's one work where there's not even an arm. You know, sometimes he uses the, the what do you call that, the crutch of the arm? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that what you call it? Yeah. To kind of provide a base or a frame for, 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 for the sculpture, and then sometimes he just dematerializes that which really forces the viewer's gaze onto the child. Do we know where he gets that idea? I can't think of a lot of examples of that kind of erasure, if you will, in early modern sculpture. 
The erasure of the mother, you mean? Of, of the arm. Oh, of using the arm as a base. Yeah. Uh, no. Or just erasing the arm and having the hand. Right, just the fragment of the hand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can see Rodin is experimenting in different ways with similar ideas, these fragments, but this is quite radical to use that as the base of the actual object. Is I don't think there's another example. What are some of the other subjects that he investigates and kind of where does he, I don't know, find is, is kind of too strong a word, but where does he encounter some of the, the, the subjects that interest him? The subject in general are unheroic. They're everyday people that he may have encountered or that are just social types of the, of the time period. So the drunkard, the street urchin, the prostitute, the door woman, those seem to be the early subjects. Then uh, he turns more towards the, the motif of mother and child and Children are certainly uh, populating Rosso's oeuvre. But in general, they're not, just like the work itself is not monumental, the subjects themselves are these ordinary, banal people that he renders in very interesting ways through the manipulation of the material. There's also... Um, this is Sharon. Uh, it's Sharon. There's uh, um, numerous portraits that are very interesting because they are portraits, but they're not portraits. They sort of uh, glimpses of people's faces that don't quite represent them, which again suggests this kind of uh, a new way to look at the entire idea of portraiture in sculpture, which was very standard and, and was supposed to capture the likeness and make that person feel like they were going to live on forever in this sculpture, and he actually turns that on its head and makes it work against itself by creating these barely modeled faces in the material. As a matter of fact, wasn't the sculpture with the child at breast a portrait? Yes, it was a, uh, it was yeah. a portrait, yeah, of the wife of, and daughter of Paul Alexis, who was a disciple of Emil Zola. And there's a large portrait of Henri Rouard here that we'll get to in a moment. But before we move on from, from subjects, are these particularly modern subjects? Are these subjects that align Rosso with any particular school of practice. Yeah, Sharon again. He's very early on in Italy looking at artists like Daumier, uh, which is quite rare for Italy at the time for people to be looking at lithographs and trying to make sculptures out of them. The drunkard, the door woman, many of those come from French realist tradition, rethought in his own way, obviously. And later on in Paris, I think he's looking around at things that are going on in Paris in the last part of the century, and also getting ideas and then rephrasing them and rethinking them. Would he have seen Daumier caricature busts? So that is a very important open question, because the show of Daumier's busts was right around the time that Rosso was beginning his career. That was the first time they were shown, and there was a catalog. Rosso leaves very little information about his sources. I mentioned Henri Rouard in 1889-90, portrait that's about when Rosso arrives in Paris. How does he come to work at that scale? Who is Rouart? It's an amazing kind of dramatic piece. We don't know this exactly how the sheriff sorry. We don't know exactly how they met. Rosso fell ill when he came to Paris, probably from exhaustion and having a proper place to live at the time. Uh, and there is a story that Ruar came to the hospital to bail him out and pay his bill. We don't know if that's true, but soon afterwards, the friendship is documented, and Rosso is probably given a space to work in one of Ruar's factories in Paris. And there are recollections by Ruar's son, again, we don't know how romanticized, of Rosso actually casting in their courtyard. 
showing the little yeah. children how he casts and them remembering staying up all night watching him. Uh, and the friendship must have lasted quite a long time because when Rosso wants to become a French citizen, it's Ruar who guarantees for him. And what, 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 Ruar is a factory owner, he's a, what is he? Ruar is a major collection, collector of Impressionist art, but by training he's an engineer. And he has factories in Paris and, and factories outside of Paris as well, in Montluçon. And Rosso probably was of interest to him also as an artist because of his interest in Impressionist painting. Mm. We keep talking about, or we keep mentioning casting, so we should probably talk about it a bit. Rosso makes sculptures in bronze and wax and plaster and sometimes mixes of those, often in mixes of those. Before I ask you how he does each of those things, is any one of these media considered more modern, more advanced, more relevant to his focus? This is Tamara. I would say that uh, bronze certainly is not new or innovative, but it's his handling of this material that's so unorthodox and unconventional, and therefore it feels modern. Wax had been used for many centuries. There's a precedent, and there's also use of artists, um, artists working in wax in the 19th century. But it becomes his signature material, and it's, again, the way that he handles it and the way that he makes it react to natural light. So how is he handling it that's him. different? Well, up until very recently, and I'll, I'll let Sharon speak about this, it was believed that he hand-modeled his waxes, that this was done through uh, application by hand. But Sharon worked on a project where that was debunked, and there was a new understanding of the way in which he actually worked in wax, which is through casting. Right, he was pouring or painting liquid wax into molds, gelatin molds. So is he working with wax then the same way he's working with plaster or bronze? Similarly, because obviously he's working in the lost wax casting process for bronze. So which is? It, it is a process by which you make a clay model, and then you, to, to simplify it, you would make a plaster model out of your clay. Your clay would break, you wouldn't need it anymore. From that plaster, you could create anything from a, another wax by making gelatin molds, or you could go further on and use the wax to melt it out and create a bronze. So in some ways, it's obviously constantly part of the process of casting. In other ways, he really makes it his own by using it in completely different ways. Sharon, you have a book coming out on, on Rosso from University of California Press in June, and in it, you mentioned that Rosso would throw casting parties, do tell. Yes. <laughs> That's one of the most interesting part of Rosso's theory is that to add his own body and his own performance of the ca process of casting into the, the experience. And we really don't have another artist who does that until Jackson Pollock almost half a century later. So he really intuits the value of showing how he is involved physically in the making. So he would invite people? Yes, he would, he would send out invitations and people would uh, come at, at night to his foundry because he had created his own little foundry in his studio, which was very rare. Very few people tried to do this on their own. Most people who tried at the time either burnt down their studios or <laughs> became cabinet makers or did something else. It's very risky. You are working at very high temperatures, and it's very hard to do it by yourself because it involves a lot of manpower, pouring the bronze at a very high heat. And he would do this in front of people, and then he would uh, obviously serve champagne to everybody afterwards and drink milk, they say. He would drink milk? Milk afterwards. 
And what's interesting about the whole performance is also that it was so fascinating to the French that he became the protagonist of a, of a French uh, roman d'art, a novel, as the sculptor Medard de Rosso, and there's these descriptions of him in almost mythical terms as this huge cyclops standing over the, the fire. And so it really captured people's imaginations. So is he choreographing these events where he has certain prescribed motions he goes through? Yes, and... it's highly choreographed, yes. And um, obviously, when you read a few of these articles about him, you can see that he was repeating it each time. And you never quite know what work he actually was casting. It seems to be kind of beside the point. It was where, where does he get this idea? Well, I, I think that's an open question. Yeah. But at the same time, why is he doing this? Yeah. And I think it's interesting to think about these casting parties as a way of himself promoting yes. Rosso you know, the man, the myth, the artist, um, doing something very dramatic in a very overpopulated field in Paris at the turn of the century where he's, that he's entering as an Italian artist. So how do you distinguish yourself in this overpopulated field? And that seems to be at least one, one reason for these elaborately staged dramatic parties that he hosts. Yes, he also has very dramatic ways of selling works to people who come to his studio with candlelight. He's not the only one who's trying these new market strategies. You can imagine also this is the moment when dealers begin to become involved. It's a moment when artists are no longer tied to institutions, and so they really have to find new ways to promote their works. It's the beginning of catalogs, illustrations. It's a whole new way to make a name for yourself. And you can imagine that this is a moment when sculptors are also reacting to this industrialization of the casting process. So as a kind of a, a way to go against that, they're showing that they are personally involved in the making of the works. One last thing on the parties. You mentioned a novel. Do we have any photo documentation or s sketching anybody did? It? I mean, do we have any visual idea of... This is Sharon again. It's very interesting that he choreographed photos of himself, and they have always been promoted as him casting, but actually you can see that they're not. They're... they're works that are very much put together to show him as if he is a maker of works. For example, one has a lot of logs behind his back in the photographs, but we know that people why, why didn't, log? as it was considered the logs that are used to stoke the fire. Yeah. But we actually know that people didn't use wood to make fire, make fires for casting. You used coke and carbon and other materials. So they're very, another mode of self-promotion are these very staged photographs that will give the idea of himself as a, an artisan, as a creator, as the man who takes his works from the start to the end of the work without the involvement of a foundry. And he also, in terms of self-promotion, not related to the parties, was fond of riffing on Courbet's self-portraits in a specific way. This is Sharon again. Yes, it's early works, I think, do reflect a great understanding of Courbet's use of himself and his own body as a self-promoter. His earliest work is A Man with a Pipe, and it looks very much like Courbet's Man with a Pipe. And then he even photographs himself with a hat that looks very similar to the Courbet painting, which was kind of emblematic of Courbet's promotion of himself as a free artist. And I think Courbet also initiates this myth, a romantic myth of an artist. And so the roots of Rosso presenting himself as an artist craftsman, for example, I think can be traced back to that or other romantic story that he invents about his personal biography feed into that whole notion that gets initiated with Corbet. And another thing that gets picked up, this is Sharon again, in the press of the time the is... French press. The French press is this idea that 
unlike Rodin, who farms a lot of his works out to foundries, Rosso has a personal involvement with his works. So some of this was also a way to define himself yeah. against the great, great sculptor of the time in Paris who was dominating everything. And if you are a foreign artist with not much support and not much money, you do have to find other ways. We're going to talk about the Rodin-Rosso relationship in a moment. My guests are Sharon Hecker and Tamara Schenkenberg. We'll be right back after a break. Deanne Arbus saw the divineness in ordinary things. SF MoMA invites you to explore the formative years of this iconic photographer's unique vision at Deanne Arbus in the Beginning, an exhibition of over 100 photographs, many on display for the first time. In the Beginning considers Arbus's early interest in portraiture, which would come to define her career and reveals her evolution from a 35mm format to the now widely imitated square format she adopted in 1962. Deanne Arbus in the beginning is on view through April 30th at SFMOMA. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Jimmy Durham at the Center of the World. Durham's first North American retrospective, this unprecedented exhibition of nearly 200 works by the artist and activist is on view from January 29th through May 7th. See the Hammer Museum's newly renovated galleries filled with Durham sculptures, video work, and installations most never shown in Los Angeles. Also on view this season, the first in-depth museum exhibition dedicated to the drawings of Jean de Buffet, a selection of works by Liz Craft from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, and Hammer Projects featuring work by Simon Denny and Kevin Beasley. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free admission and free for good. And now back to my conversation with Sharon Hecker and Tamara Schenkenberg. I mentioned earlier that Rosso leaves Italy in 1889 when he's 31, but his first known sculpture dates to 1881, so eight years earlier. But his first kind of big innovation, his first new thing, uh, comes in 1883. It's a bronze that's now lost. What is it? Why is it innovative? And I guess, you know, it's not on a pedestal. Why is that a big deal? The work you have in mind uh, is... La Rincoscenza? Oh, that's a funerary monument. Yeah. That isn't actually, yeah. Again, I think he's looking a lot at Courbet because it's the image of a woman lying on the ground looking into an empty hole where the dead person is supposed to be buried. And, of course, the burial of Ornang is the prototypical image that was considered so blasphemous because they left this big hole visible in the middle of the painting. And it's very rare in the cemetery to find an image of death that's not covered covered because, of course, you want to signal the passage of death to the afterlife and keep those two worlds separate. He also made an image of this woman very undecorous. Her, her hair is down. She's lying flat on her stomach. Her shoes are cast off to the side, and he actually casts two little shoes so you can see she's taken off her shoes. She's lying with a very short skirt, and in fact, after only eight days, the work was covered with graffiti and inscriptions by people who called her Eve after the original sin, and the work was removed from the cemetery, and even attempts to put it back were not successful. So he was really trying to show a very intimate, highly emotionally charged portrait of death 
in a public space that probably couldn't accept something like that at the time. It was very radical and had no base, which, you know, you, I think every single sculpture in the cemetery, a funerary work, has a properly made base by an architect, and he just avoids that completely and puts her straight on the ground. Sharon, you called Rosso's 83, 84 sculpture, the concierge, his first truly modern sculpture. Why? What, what, what makes it so modern? I'm going to let Tamara. <laughs> This is Tamara. I think it's emblematic of a work that he initiates early on in his, his, his career while he's in Milan, but the cast version of it that we have in the exhibition in wax is something that he makes while in Paris. We know because earlier versions would have been in plaster or in bronze, and here he's working in wax, uh, which is not a material he starts really negotiating until 1895. And the reason why it feels sort of quintessentially a turning point for Rosso is because the way that he breaks up the surfaces and the way that he makes them receptive to light, and that sort of announces this direction that he will move into for the next few decades. You know, we'll have an image of, of the concierge on, uh, on manpodcast.com. It, it almost seems like kind of a half-recognizable thing, lower two-thirds two of a face, and then the top portion of it is not. What is he doing? Well, it's interesting to go back to Domier because it's a social type and it feels kind of comical and caricaturish. But then he, he moves beyond the subject itself in order to draw your attention to the surface qualities of this work. And so part of it is obscured and almost looks abstract and part of it is representational. And that quality of veiling the sculpture through the material becomes, again, a gesture that one can trace subsequently in his work. And if I can add something about the emotional content of that sculpture, it's the first sculpture really that turns away from the viewer. You don't, she's a door woman. Usually in Daumier, we have little vignettes or funny words around it. He takes all that away and you can't quite figure out what she's feeling. So it, it holds you there, but at the same time it holds you there by not giving you information about who she is, what she's doing, that top of the head area. Also, it, it, you can't really quite see her bonnet, which would be her typical costume. So he's really wiping away a lot of the language of realism and making it more essential, more about the emotional content and not just about a kind of a, a slice of life image. The most maybe astonishing sculpture here is Madame X which almost seems completely impossible within the context of 1896, which is the year in which it was made. Where, where does it come from, first of all? What, what motivates him to, to, to erase so much recognizable anything? I would say that, just um, backing up a little bit, this work was shown in the United States in 1963, and this is the first time it's made its return, so we are really thrilled to have it here for the show not only because it's an extraordinary sculpture, but it's the only one of its kind. Rosso normally worked in a serial fashion, and this is a standalone piece. And then, as you mentioned, it's really haunting. It's really just an ovoid head, but it's one where the facial features are really not distinguished. And what you see are layers of wax that are placed on top of a plaster shell. And the wax changes in terms of color, it changes in terms of thinness. The material hand handling is really extraordinary and makes her seem very mysterious and semi-abstract. And this is, like you said, 1896. So it does seem like a step far 
for an artist who's working at the turn of the century. And one of the things that's very interesting about it is its base. I mean, uh, installation of that work is very difficult because it is leaning so far over that you have to hold it's it. It's leaning forward. It forward. Yeah. yeah, so that you have to hold it until you have it actually anchored. And one of the amazing things that Rosso does with his sculptures is to move them off balance, which is just completely against all the ideas of sculpture. Uh, off balance by, by tilting in, them the forward or backwards. Side or side, or, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, it gives you the sense of precariousness. You're almost there to try to grab it before it falls. And actually, some of the restoration work on some works is usually because they were in people's houses and they were so far over that they tipped over. And Madame X has that idea of something just coming around a corner or just glimpsed very quickly instead of being there iconic and, and and, and straight, even though her face in that kind of almond shape does have some kind of iconic sense to it. We don't know Can when it was made, all? actually. We don't know, ex I mean, he's, he only exhibits it in the second decade of the, 20th, of the 19th, 20th century. Oh, so the date that we have for it is an exhibition date, it's, not necessarily a making date. We, he gave that date as the making uh -huh. date many, many years earlier, and there's been a lot of controversy to understand also what relationship it has with some of the works by somebody, somebody like Brancusi, who had in the meantime come along and started working in a similar We day. are definitely gonna to get to that. Okay. But help me understand the erasure of facial features a little more. I mean, so there are no eyes, there's certainly no recognizable anything. I mean, really all it is, is a head-like form tilted forward in an extreme fashion and kind of a peak where, where a nose would more or less be. So is this the culmination of, maybe culmination's not a good word, of his own interest in erasure and veiling, or is he engaging with somebody else, or something else? This is Tamara. We should be careful about thinking of Rosso and his interest in abstraction of facial features in terms of a progression, because he does go back and forth. He will make mm. works that seem very pared down, and then go back and really articulate the features even more. So mm. Madame X exists in this ebb and flow where he moves between more realistic and more abstract representations of sculpture. But this is definitely at the very radical end of how he handles the material and how he handles the portrait of a woman. Yeah, there is this kind of game between seeing and being seen in all of his works that uh, she plays with very, in a very, very subtle way. And, and that sense of fugit fugitiveness, of flux, you can see it in the way that he represents Madame X. You, you see it sort of supported by the way in which he mounts that head on the base, as we talked about, because there is a great sense of instability and off-centeredness that keeps the work constantly mobile. And if you look at it, there are eyes. They're, they're just very muffled. Very muffled. Yeah. And, and Alma, if you didn't know where to look for them, you wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the nose provides just guide, enough. just enough guide. And, and I love the color of wax in that particular yeah. sculpture because it has this warm amber hue that lends it, again, this aura of mystery. And so it's a very intimate, small sculpture, but it has a monumental charisma. And what's interesting about it as well, Mrs. Sharon, is that it had long been argued if it was a portrait of somebody, if it was a portrait of his lover, and then for an another period it was thought to be a portrait of the wife of a friend of his. So there is something about her that people relate to as a portrait and then also as not a portrait. Did he give the work the title we know it by now? That's what he sold it by that title. Yeah. But he would always change the titles of his works and he would also change the dates of his works, so we could never uh, be 100% sure. Did, did he color his wax? Did he add something to it to give it color? Do we know? 
sometimes he used different kinds of wax. Mm. We don't have any examples of him actually coloring on top of the surface of the wax or mm. anything like that. It's not like polychrome. Who is the greatest French sculptor of Rousseau's Paris, and what is Rousseau's relationship with him like? So he does have a relationship to Rodin. The two meet, they exchange works, they stri strike up a friendly relationship. How, how early do they meet? How quickly after Rousseau arrives do they meet? It's about five years. His first exhibition in Paris in a very sophisticated space, Rodin shows up and very attuned oh. to all the novelties in Paris, is completely struck by some of the works he sees in the show. And they shake hands and they exchange works and there's a few lunches between the two and they're very friendly. And then Rosso tries to ask for more and more favors from Rodin. A, a very negative review comes out about Rosso in the Mercure de France and he writes to Rodin and begs him, please do something about that review. It's awful for my reputation, and Rodin doesn't seem to want to respond. So there is kind of a cooling off on Rodin's part where you get the sense that Rodin does not want to get involved. Rosso takes this very badly and thinks that Rodin is actually trying to sabotage his career. We do know that Rodin did influence several sculptors' careers, positively and negatively, So, but at the same time, you can't compare the largest, most famous and popular national institution uh, compared to a foreigner who's trying to make it in a country that's not his own. So, so Tamara, how does kind of Rodin exist in, in Rosso's Paris? I mean, he's a titan, but what is he? I mean, I guess obviously Rosso would be interested in engaging, in engaging the foremost sculptor of the place and time. Does he do it with one work? Does he do it with multiple works? I think he certainly wants his approval. I think he wants his friendship. So it's he more personal as, influence, as much as... Probably very much looking at the work that Rodin's making and that whole milieu must, must have been very important. But then there's, of course, uh, a point at which there's a break between the two men. And it has to do with, with Rosso's perceived notion that Rodin stole ideas from him. This is great fun. This is, this is, this is a fun part some, of the some story. Some of this comes after Rosso asks Rodin to exhibit a work in his own personal pavilion at the 1900 Exposition Universelle, where Rodin is given his own pavilion, and Rosso says, would you exhibit this very large sculpture of mine in your pavilion? <laughs> and you can't imagine a, a greater imbalance of power. Clearly, Rodin does not respond, and then slowly the press starts building on this rivalry. This actually is born in the press because uh, at a certain point there is a battle of for who was the inventor of Impressionist sculpture. Was it Rosso or was it Rodin? And a little book comes out, which is clearly a piece of Rosso propaganda called Impressionist, Impressionism in Sculpture, where the author Edmond Clarisse interviews all the great sculptors and painters and collectors and critics, but it's all filled with photographs of Rosso's work. And from this, the press turns this into a huge battle between the two of who is the, the great inventor of Impressionist sculpture. We know what Impressionist painting is. What is Impressionist sculpture and what differentiates it from, say, realist sculpture, or is it just an artificial phraseology? I mean, I don't know that there is a unified theory of Impressionist sculpture. I think we can talk about it vis-a-vis -vis Rosso and what Rosso is trying to do. And for this exhibition, we've, we've really tried to build on the theme of light and the way that he manipulates light. There's one writer who says that Rosso's art is not made of light, but for the light. And I think that's something that we very much try to explore. 
and it's not just about light, but it's also about the materials that he employs, the way that he handles those materials, and the way that he makes those materials respond to uh, both natural and artificial illumination. So that's the starting point for how we can maybe identify Rosso vis-a-vis Impressionist sculpture. So when Rosso's installing work by candlelight and having people into his studio to see it, is he expecting audiences to think, oh, uh, in, in Impressionist painting, we're used to a certain kind of range of handling of light, and look, I'm doing the same thing. Is that a link he expects Parisians to get? Well, probably, but he changes his definition of Impressionism yeah. throughout the years quite a bit. Uh, at some point, it's closer to something that would be more attuned with Van Gogh or uh, Cezanne, which is kind of an emotional impression. Uh, at other points, he's trying to stay closer to the idea of the optical impression. Very hard to... Uh, sometimes he's very excited about placing his works next to paintings by Cezanne or Renoir because he feels that the color of sculpture should be brought out just like the color of painting, and he likes these affinities. So it, it, it's, a, it's a very fluid discussion of what, what is Impressionist sculpture. So here at the Pulitzer, you've tried to reference the changing ways in which uh, Rosso liked to install work with different light. How have you done that? Well, maybe just a, a few words about our gallery spaces because they become very important to the story we're trying to say about Rosso. So um, the Pulitzer is located in a building design by Tadao Ando, and the galleries are not neutral back backdrops for the art, but instead are very much active and they contribute to your experience of anything that is really placed in the building. And so there's a formal simplicity here, but it's enlivened in many galleries by the preponderance of natural light that we try to just let be. And so what that means in terms of actual lived experience in the building is that one can really feel the light change as the day moves from morning to night, as the weather patterns fluctuate, as there's a change in seasons. And that's very much important to the artist, like Rosso, who said that a work of art that doesn't concern itself with light doesn't have a right to exist. So it's kind of an ex existential question for him. And we really try to put the qualities of this building in dialogue with the artwork. And the work that we're showcasing in a natural gallery is different in terms of scale, in terms yeah. of material, to really see how did he try to make his work receptive to the effects of light. And, and we then continue that narrative in our lower levels, where all of a sudden you find yourself having to contend with artificial illumination. And so we have a, a gallery that's designed specifically to help you think through that question as well. Think through it how? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we devised this light room where uh, you could actually manipulate the light on the sculpture and understand the process by which um, the works are exhibited because usually you come to a museum and the light is already set for you. The mood is set for you. You don't even think about it. It's completely taken for granted. So our idea was to come back to the idea of Rosso experimenting with light and give you the chance as the viewer to also do that as well in different, uh, using different light settings. You can explain the device. Sure. So we have one gallery that's at a, at a threshold in our space between the natural light and the artificial light, and it features one work only. 
And when you walk in, you're handed this handheld device that allows you to modify the angles and the intensity of light that falls on the sculpture. And so there's a direct experience there of how your perception of art and sculpture in particular is affected by um, different angles and the different intensities of illumination. And we should also say that this is not a historical. This is very much of, of Rosso's own doing because while as an artist he speaks about natural illumination, he also is working in Paris when the incandescent light bulb is yeah. developed. And there's a record of him trying to light his own sculptures and design um, the exhibition spaces accordingly in order to see what uh, what the effects are and to be. And just to put that in context, this is a moment when all sculptors are very concerned with artificial light because when they had their works at the salon, they never had control over the light levels. And there's and lots of... the salon of it was gaslight? Or? Uh, yes, but there was always a lot of complaining, like why was mine near the window or why was mine in the dark <laughs> or why didn't the right light fall on my work because they were not allowed to install their own works or choose where they could be. And so just the beginning of these impressionist exhibitions in these private spaces where they could actually light their own works was a, a whole new world for them. And uh, he takes that one step further by actually thinking about where the light will fall. One of the things we wanted to do also was add these photographs of his works next to the sculptures. Uh, he photographs his own sculptures under different lighting conditions. So we know that he was experimenting in his studio with this very idea that we wanted to convey to the visitor as well. What does he do with the photographs? I mean, is he, are they for him? Are they for handing out the way you would JPEGs of a work today? What was, what was so his purpose in making So all of the above them? and also to publish them because at a certain point he does something very radical for the time which is to give these crazy cropped uh, experimental looking uh, photographs and insist that they accompany his catalogs and they accompany articles about him and he won't let other people's photographs be used. So uh, I think they have many purposes. They're very interesting. Do you want to... This is Tamara. So it should be noted that the, his photographs, of which there are hundreds uh, existing, they're always uh, of his own sculpture. And so he's trying to think through, I think, both form and composition and light mm. by using photography. And, and we very much wanted to feature that work alongside the, the, the cast that we have here in order to show his production holistically. But I think what he's also trying to figure out is maybe, I mean, this is a, a speculation, but figure out how to, how to cast in a serial fashion. And mm. photography kind of helps you think through that. If mm. you're you cropping the sculptures in a different way or using a different focus, and you can things see... Things he does in cast, yeah. he does in casting. And maybe it's a kind of a quick way to get at what a sculpture or a subsequent casting could look like if you were to manipulate its direction, its form, its um, focus, etc. It also, this is Sharon again, allows that glimpse and that impression in that moment to actually prolong itself because he can continue to work on it and think about it and manipulate it. And in a lot of cases, you can even see in the one that we're next to, he cuts very irregularly or he works on the glass plates or he works on the photograph with pen, with paper, uh, with uh, all kinds of materials very, very early. We're long before a collage or photo montage. He cuts uh, exhibition photos and adds 
adds in little bits of works that weren't actually in the exhibition, superimposed onto them, and then re-photographs them. We have photographs of photographs. It's very experimental. Photographs of photographs yes. that he took. Yes. Yeah. And also photographs of drawings. Of drawings as well, took. yeah. So where, is this entirely an idea and practice of his own invention, or are there other sculptors in Paris doing this? There are a lot of sculptors experimenting with photography, but not to this level, and mm. not in a way that makes the medium work against itself. A little bit like this, mm. these radical casting, where a good cast is actually a very bad cast. That's something that he is really building into his, his process that I can't think of anybody. And, you know, at the time, people probably thought that was quite crazy. My guests are Sharon Hecker and Tamara Schenkenberg. We'll be right back after a break. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Sarah Oppenheimer, S337473, and Carmen Herrera, Lines of Sight, through April 16th. Oppenheimer's site-responsive, perception-altering installation was created with support from a Wexner Center Artist Residency Award. Originally curated by Dana Miller for the Whitney Museum of American Art, Lines of Sight is the first museum survey of Herrera's elegant, geometric work in nearly two decades, and this is the show's only stop outside of New York City. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Inner Circle Galleries at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. stretch more than 400 linear feet. For her largest work, Lynn Myers has made a monumental site-specific wall drawing that encircles the museum's second level. When Myers works nesting one line beside another, she welcomes and magnifies the imperfections that arise naturally from her process. Tiny ripples become waves that pulse with energy. Get more information at hershorn.si.edu and get caught in the current. And now back to my conversation with Sharon Hecker and Tamara Schenkenberg. One of the really neat experiences of seeing so much of the work in one place, which is something Americans haven't had an opportunity to do for many decades, is, is you get to see how much he's relying on, on or using the lean. Leaning figures, as we talked about in passing a few minutes ago, a body part or a whole body leaning forward or to the side or leaning backward which in the parlance of maybe the 21st century seems like kind of a formal thing to do, but in the parlance of the late 19th century, it was a very modern thing to do. So before we get to the great Rodin-Rosso leaning debate, why is a leaning figure indicative of modernity? This is Sharon. I think that uh, anything that disrupted the gravity of sculpture must have been thought of as quite modern, and also might have caused people to uh, worry a little bit about the fate of sculpture, because it oh, was... Oh, the physical fate of it. Yes, of course, of a, of as well as uh, the direction sculpture was going in. Uh, there were many people who thought this is not the way sculpture should be going. If you think about also Rodin and his great experiments of taking sculptures off the pedestals, flying iris through the air, uh, that kind of idea of allowing sculpture to do many things that it was considered not allowed to do was probably the reason that it felt so modern. I think, too, the, the tilting, the off-center does, gives an impression of something that's shifting. So uh -huh. those transient impressions, the sense of a glimpse, I think, is underscored by the way in which he positions his sculpture. I think it goes back to the, your first question about the dematerialization, something that feels like uh, it's moving um, or shifting or 
is in the process of, of being in flux. And painters are painting leaning figures too. Yes, that's quite, it's quite frequent in Impressionist painting and Nabi painting. Also, I think the diagonal as a form is the one that seems more dynamic in terms of light. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So Rosso doesn't just do it once. He does it over and over again. So it wasn't just something he was trying on for size. It became pretty fundamental. Is there any documentation that he left behind that indicates why that worked for him? Nope. <laughs> nope. I, I, I've been there. <laughs> does Rosso experiment with leaning figures and drawing too? Yes, he does. Yeah. Yes, the, the drawings are a completely different practice for him because unlike photographs, let's Yeah, they're say, not they're, studies, right? They're not studies of his work, but they seem to capture the world that surrounds him. So we um, see landscapes, cityscapes, interior scenes with figures. And there is a quite interesting cropping that one can see that kind of puts the figure off balance or off kilter instead of occupying the entire expanse of the page, he will sort of make his um, subject sort of off-centered and in balance. And so there is a sense of that play at work in the drawings as well. In 1898, Rodin makes a very famous sculpture. What is it and how does it become an issue between them? Well, it's obviously it's Rodin's monument to Balzac, which was um, not installed. It was considered too controversial because it represented Balzac standing backwards in his bathrobe and not in a historical, uh, formal way. It was considered not a good tribute to this great hero of France. Rodin keeps it, of course, puts it in his backyard. Uh, it's photographed by many people, including Edward Steichen, and uh, many years later is considered the first modern monument. Clearly, that work elicited an enormous amount of press, an enormous amount of controversy. There was actually a subscription taken up to put it back up, and Rosso is one of the first people to contribute to that subscription. So he was clearly in favor of this work. Unfortunately, later on in this press battle, some critics believed that one of Rosso's works may have influenced Rodin's final decision because the next to last... The decision to lean. The decision to make the work lean, yeah, because the next to last version of it before the final one is still standing quite straight up. Uh, but there are many sources that could have been of interest to Rodin. Rosso's might have been one of them. And clearly, it elicited such a negative reaction that one can only imagine what the works that Rosso made, like the bookmaker that's behind you, which is also leaning, could have, would have elicited had it been in a large monumental form. What's interesting about those works is that they were never exhibited, so that if Rodin saw them, he would have had to have seen them in Rosso's studio. So is this work, and the credit Rosso doesn't get for it, a source of tension between them? I mean, there's a point thereafter where, I guess, Rosso refuses to shake Rodin's hand in a particular public place. Is that work and that, what, what Rosso believed was, was, was the borrowing of his lean, if you will, kind of the big issue between them, or was it? Like I said, when you actually look at the bigger picture, this was building up over time. There were lots of requests on Rosso's part uh, that Rodin was not willing to help him with. Many sculptors felt that Rodin was not particularly supportive of their careers. Uh, of course, we know the very famous story of Camille Claudel as well, who also had similar ideas that Rodin had stolen her ideas. So it's a difficult call. Certainly, Rosso felt very betrayed. He felt that Rodin had not acknowledged his debt and that this was not okay. 
1889 when Rousseau arrives in Paris. I think it's Sharon who calls Rousseau's 1906 Behold the Child his masterpiece. First, why is it his masterpiece? Secondly, he lives another 22 years. What does he do? Why it's his masterpiece, it comes after many years of not making a new subject. He is traveling all around Europe trying to make a name for himself outside of Paris because he realizes that Paris is not going to be enough for him to create a legacy. So he is uh, having actually pretty good success in Germany and Austria in Holland and uh, many countries. And he ends up in London with a commission for a very wealthy Jewish family who would like a portrait of their young son. This is the Mond family, and the little boy is named Alfred William. And the story goes that he isn't able to capture this child's likeness. He's a guest in this family's home. He's overstaying his welcome. And one night at a party, the child appears to him very quickly behind a curtain. And that is how he captures this child, as this kind of vision behind a curtain. There's another story that he saw him in the first ray of light in the morning. And that's how he captured. So obviously some of this is part of Rosso's myth, right, of the idea of the these glimpse. these stories and he like circulates? Family and family books, members. yeah. yeah. Uh, he himself, no, yeah. Mm -hmm. So they can be sourced back to his... Yeah. Yes, and he first gives it the name of the child, and then he actually changes it to Behold the Child. So from portrait of Alfred William Mond, it becomes Behold the Child. It's a larger-than-life child's head, so it has yeah. something of a very monumental feel to it. But at the same time, it's really an incredible connection with this little child as if behind some kind of mesh or veil and there's a an, an, an very large emotional charge to this work as well as the sense that he's made a monumental statement. So those two things um, combine, I think, to make it his masterpiece. And it's the synthesis of, like you said, Sharon, emotion, the material, everything sort of coming together to create a haunting and a beautiful masterpiece. And it's um, somebody even describes it as a vision of purity in a banal world, and it really resonates as such. And another uh, beautiful quote that is attached to this work is some, it's taken from a sonnet by um, Rossetti, and it's called A Moment's Monument. So it really is, because it does have a monumental feel to it, but it is also very, very personal. He lives another 22 years. What does he do? His, his time in France is disrupted. After the First World War, he moves back to Milan, and that certainly, certainly... He revoked his him. Italian citizenship, but still was able to do this. Correct. Distances him from the, uh, the dynamic vitality of the being in Paris, in that, in, that, in that milieu. And we're sort of, we've speculated that this is the time maybe when he picks up drawing, because he's also on the road uh, quite so a So the bit. drawings, none of the drawings, or a few of the drawings, I guess, are dated, but not very many. Almost none of the drawings are dated. Mm. And what's more, they're executed on really unprecious surfaces. Hotel um, stationery and the like. Hotel stationery. Business envelopes, cards. Yeah. Business yeah. cards. Um, and especially if he's traveling, you know, these would have been abundantly available to him. And so that sort of supports one of our suspicions. And mm. so drawing must have been a practice that he kind of picks up during this time period. But in terms of sculpture, it really slows down. And, I don't know if you want to say a few words more about that, Sharon. Well, one of the things we were thinking also is the use of wax made it very easy for him to work in hotel rooms as well, because all you needed was uh -huh. to melt your gelatin, which was in powder. I mean, 
turn it in, you could make a mold and then you could pour your wax in, you would just need a little pot to do that. Whereas for a sculptor to actually make a bronze, you would need a foundry, you would need fire, you couldn't do these in the hotel rooms. And so some of this is to make sculpture a little bit more mobile and the drawings and the photographs as well could, um, could help promote that idea of uh, mobility. I, I also wanted to say back to Echipur that uh, the family rejected that image and thought it was a terrible likeness of their child and didn't want it, so. Portraitists throughout art history That's right. run into that issue, right? That's right. That's and Rouard wasn't terribly And Rouard was also not very happy with oh. his portrait. <laughs> exactly. So Sharon, in your UC Press book, you, you write that you think Rosso's status as an Italian in Paris was itself groundbreaking. How was just simply his being an Italian in Paris groundbreaking and maybe a couple of examples of who that, who and how it opened the door for? So if you think of that period in Paris after the Commune, there's an influx of foreigners. But when foreigners come to Paris, especially Italians, either they completely adapt to the French scene to make themselves more marketable, uh, their style becomes, the painters becomes very impressionistic, sculptors end up working in ateliers of big French sculptors and are unable to make a name for themselves. There are other sculptors who try to make a name for themselves but end up selling reproductions. He really keeps to himself as much as he can, tries not to become too French, tries not to flaunt too much his Italianness, And so it, it's groundbreaking in the way that he is, sort of finds his own individual self with great difficulty in a world that is very much pressuring him to fit in with the French milieu, otherwise to be excluded as a kind of exotic outsider that he could have been written off for. Later on, we have Brancusi and Giacometti and artists like that who are able to make names for themselves in Paris, even though they're not French and uh, have careers in the 20th century. So he's really one of the first who was able to do that. I should also say that he is the first sculptor to not have a monument to his name. 19th century sculptors are always oh. associated with a major monument. Yeah. And if you think that later Brancusi and Giacometti can do that with no problem, uh, you realize that uh, he opened the door for them in some way. For non-French sculptors to exactly. get monument commissions in Paris. Well, I, that was still a problem. I mean, um, I think the only one is uh, there was going to be a monument to Zola by a, a Belgian sculptor named Meunier, and there was so much criticism. How could Zola be represented by a Belgian? He has to be made by a French person. So uh, it is a, it, monuments are very touchy subjects because they're attached to national uh, pride and, and, uh, and national ideas. For each of you, can you think of a couple artists who take things, take influence from Rosso, and, and maybe what specific things you think they get from him? I can't think of one artist, but I think the legacy is this dual attention paid to both the emotional and the material qualities mm. of a work that feels very resonant today. So it's difficult to look at Rosso's work without thinking of process and how these were made. And while that doesn't seem to have been his interest and sole pursuit, that sort of tactility and labor that went into it, the, the process itself seems very contemporary, matched with the emotional content and the psychological charge. It really makes you look beyond the material to the states of mind of the subjects that were presented. So for me, that feels a legacy that he kind of starts and then it continues into the 20th, 21st century. Yeah, I think there are numerous artists who openly 
claim their love of Rosso. Artipovera, for example, um, mm. many artists speak of Rosso as a kind of beginning point for them for very different reasons. If you think of Marisa Meritz, whose exhibition now at the Breuer, you'll see little heads that she claims are mm. very interesting to her because of her interest in Rosso, also her use of wax. Giovanni Anselmo, another Artipovera artist, wrote once that he was overwhelmed by the beauty of Rosso's works because they felt to him like they had a beating heart. There, uh, Diana Al-Hadid, a young mm -hmm. Syrian-American artist, had an exhibition called Regarding Medardo Rosso because she was so fascinated by his works. Tony Cragg. Penone, another Artipova artist, is very interested in that tactile mm -hmm. quality of the skin of his works. So people can take from him very different things, which is what makes Rosso so interesting. Luciano Fabro also is very interested in his photographs. Uh, the idea of stopping a moment in time through his photographs that also actually seem to prolong time. But he seems very much like an artist's artist, and that yes. love affair with Rosso's work starts even immediately with the futurists, and like Sharon said, it continues with Art of Pover and beyond. So he does seem like a vital artist. Engagement with materials, hoping for errors as part of the, the process, all things that we just take for granted. Today now, we take we don't for even granted. Think about. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Thanks again. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.